You're listening to the Entrepreneur's Agony Aunt podcast. Keeping it real, telling the story like it is, because there are no mistakes that somebody else hasn't already made. Hello, and welcome to the Entrepreneur Agony Aunt podcast. I'm Vicky Brock, and I'm joined this week by Laurel and Aishal Quinn, the co-founders of fintech startup Sustainably. A number of firsts this week. First, I have two guests. Secondly, we're tackling their question. In the past, I have taken anonymous questions and matched them up with another entrepreneur to um, explore that in a bit more depth. As some of you know, I am now deep back in my own startup mode. Time has become somewhat more restricted than it has been for a year or so. So I'm being multi-efficient. So if any of you have A, a question, and B, want to be on the episode and discuss it with me, I'm setting a new precedent. Do let me know how you think it works out. So, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having um, us. Welcome, Laurel. Welcome, Aishal. Yeah. Before we kick into your brave question, perhaps you could introduce yourselves mm-hmm. and a little bit. I know, Laurel, you gave up a corporate uh, career to do the whole startup thing. You came from retail, um, Aishal. Um, so, perhaps tell us a little bit about how you got here what you're doing and how the experience has been so far. Yeah. Hi, Vicky. Thank you so much for having us on your podcast. So I started off in my career in the investment industry and I was there for a long number of number of decades um, and laterally was advising the board on digital strategy and transformation and looking at a number of things which kind of inspired me to get into sustainably. So coming from what was setting up a digital team, uh, scaling a business from six to 30 countries in the investment industry, and then kind of I shall turning our whole world into eco and ethical retail and a, a different mindset. We kind of just got thinking about new ideas in terms of how we could create a digital product that would scale and enable people to create impact. And do good every day. Yeah. yeah. In my spare time, I started writing this crazy business plan. I had just done the Google Squared course, which is all around disruptive innovation. And after that, it kind of just started triggering a number of thoughts in my head, like, what am I doing? What's my purpose in life? Why am I here? Am I going to stay in the investment industry for another couple of decades or can I escape? So having drafted this business plan and then kind of started running past ideas about it with Aisha, we kind of got more and more into it. And I guess the sort of first part of that journey was being accepted onto Entrepreneurial Spark where we thought this is great, we'll get access to data because we're creating a fintech product that works with your banking transactions. And we'll we'll have this... We were the first intake out at RBS, the Google Brown RBS. Uh Ah, right. So for listeners not in Scotland, Entrepreneurial Spark was an accelerator program. My last company, Clear Returns, went on that right at the very beginning um, over in Glasgow. So you then went on it when it had been taken over by RBS. RBS. We went on it when it went into the RBS building. It hadn't yet been completely taken over Mm -hmm. by the RBS team. But there was a lot of blurred lines about what you could and could not do with Mm -hmm. RBS. So we thought, okay, we're just going to go and speak to everyone <laughs> and yeah. get help from everyone it was, a nice, totally, it was a nice piece of CSR play for them to 
move entrepreneurs into the executive wing. Yeah, so we went there and that was a that was really helpful for us at that stage. We kind of then started quickly realizing, wow, this is this is gonna be a lot harder than we expected it to be. Like the whole banking industry was not where we needed it to be. We didn't have any uh technical co founders. Yeah. Um there was just uh, funding was an issue. Um mm-hmm. we put a lot of our personal funds into it, but you know, not enough to actually get a product up and running and be able to, you know, pay a development team. So there was a lot of barriers that we were really struggling on well, how are we going to get past this yeah so we tried a couple of um crazy crowdfunding things at the beginning we thought we'll do this voom campaign you know this virgin voom campaign we got some friends to give us some money but we were just so early stage and that was a kind of mass mass populated uh, program that was going on so mm-hmm. I guess that we were tiny fry in that when there was people dragging planes up the Clyde and getting people to support oh that so. and it's really interesting about the crowdfund experience mm-hmm. because um, having listened to you and the experience that you had doing it too early and mm-hmm. without the really yeah. big marketing campaign mm-hmm. behind exactly. it that's actually quite affected how I've advised mm-hmm. other people mm-hmm. and also when we've done we, you know we, we quite a long while ago talked about crowdfunding briefly in an episode mm-hmm. but it yeah. might mm-hmm. be quite interesting to come back mm-hmm. to that so this was year one I guess that was kind of month six ish <laughs> so you know we thought let's try and get some cash mm-hmm. um this thing was happening in the summer we had started at entrepreneurial spark in February so it was really really early but we thought let's give it a try and see what happens with this idea that we've mm-hmm. got and kind of along that way we kind of we were getting positive feedback we had done focus groups with lots of the teams at RBS we just didn't have the money to build it so we knew we were going in the right direction with the product because mm-hmm. we had this positive feedback that these were things that people would actually problems that people had and something that people would use so we eventually applied to the virgin startups um loans program it took us quite a while we thought it was going to be two or three weeks to get this loan but it took us like three or four months to get it in the end and we then eventually got that we got that match funded by Scottish Enterprises Innovation Team which then enabled us to get the MVP out for mm-hmm. Monzo Bank customers which was the first bank that had open banking APIs which is how we run our product and Monzo a previous podcast guest also. yes so yes. so that was great for us and um, we then won a number of awards based on the product where we presented at Finnovate Fall in New York and we won a best of show there we got nominated for a BIMA award for technology with conscience we're a top 10 virgin startup and we're on now on tech nations fintech growth program and and on unlocking ambition with the Scottish government to help kind of Mm -hmm. accelerate that but coming back to the big question is we have always found that funding has been a real barrier Mm -hmm. so for us we have never been able to get to the next level because we've always been operating on a shoestring budget and our sort of big question that we're trying to figure out is how as female fintech co-founders can we get funded mm-hmm. there's lots of f's in there yeah so you could um, add a few more <laughs> yeah um, i mean one of the other questions that you asked me privately was about speeding up getting mm-hmm. your round closed yeah. and you also asked a question which was how can you leverage some of these awards and some of the prizes which are equivalent prizes or match funding prizes or convertible loan prizes Mm -hmm. that come with some of the things that you're spending a lot Mm -hmm. of time and effort pursuing. How can you leverage that Mm -hmm. to help close your funding down and Mm -hmm. help get the level of funding that you need? And you mention as being female co-founders, but I think one of the other challenges that you have as a company, and I know that some of the other listeners 
have as well is that your social conscience is mm-hmm. right up mm-hmm. baked right into the core mm-hmm. of what you do and perhaps in a minute you can tell us a little bit more about that but you have built a fintech for social good mm-hmm. so it's both commercial and it's for good and my experience at the moment is that there are a lot of investors out there quite interested in this for good thing until it actually comes to giving you a term mm-hmm. sheet because they can't quite figure out how they can make the multiple return on investment from that investment that they need to be able to justify their deals. Mm. So, you know, you've got a couple of challenges going on. Tell me a little bit more about the social purpose of what Mm. you're doing, Mm. the level to which you are or are not prepared to compromise on that in order to get investment over the line. Because I'm sure if an investor isn't asking you that directly, they're thinking that. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So the interesting thing about Sustainably is it's B2C and it's B2B. So the B2C platform is an app. So it's all about giving and it's about giving in frictionless ways so we look at the latest technologies and think how can we integrate that into a product that's forgiving so for example with our roundups products that was heavily focused on fintech open banking sector leveraging the banks opening up all of their apis so that me as an individual i have access to my own banking data and i can get products such as sustainably which opens up a whole new level of products in the market. That's another problem as well, is that we're we're literally creating a product in a in a essentially a whole new sector. Yeah. And um, and being a market maker, I've been there, is insanely difficult. It's, it's really not fun. It's not fun. It's <laughs> no. virtually impossible totally. to do when you're bootstrapped. Totally. And it's not fun trying to explain that to people who aren't directly in that sector as well. So that's investors, people at SE, trying to explain that and break it down as to why we couldn't have had a product up until now, because now is the only time that the, the banks have had to mandatory, open. Mm-hmm. there was a mandatory open of all your, um, the bank's APIs. But back to the, the impact point. So the B2C platform, we don't take a fee on individuals' donations, which sets us aside from all of the other competitors Absolutely, of just yeah. giving, etc. So there's no 5%, 3% fee on donations. It's completely 100% of their donation goes to the cause itself. Our B2B platform, which is for businesses, so both retailers and employer-based businesses, to have a software-as-a-service platform, which essentially means that they can machinate with their customers and employees. So it's hyper-localizing and personalizing their CSR. So we are essentially providing them with a level of anonymized data. It gives them a certain level of transparency around what people care about, but then also me as an individual, when I go into my Sustainably app, I can see uh, what shops have matched donated with me and I can see that my retailers matched donated with me and that's going to what I care about mm. personally. So it's kind of flipping the whole corporate CSR on its head because it's saying we value what our customers and employees want to give to. And that's how we make our money is off the B2B side. Mm-hmm. So that's the, the real split here is that we are um, essentially a software as a service company when it comes to the, the B2B side and that's how we make our profits. Mm-hmm. And as we scale because we have this ecosystem of charities who already have uh, a large number of supporters and when they come onto the platform they partner market that out they also have corporate partnerships existing at the moment Mm -hmm. that they then promote us to as well so it is an ecosystem so there is a real um, scaling opportunity here and what happens I mean have you had the conversations where people have gone oh well couldn't you just charge like two and a half percent 
100% so that you're less than just giving. And, and how have you responded to that? Yeah, so we were encouraged to have the 5% fee at the outset. We did do that for a while, but it was really just really crushing against our principles. So we feel that there's better business models and also our competitors have not had great press from that mm-hmm. and people don't want that. And, you know, when you look at how Google has scaled providing free services to end users in order to maximize the services they can provide to business customers as well, where the business customers pay, that kind of makes sense to us. So um, that's kind of the route that we've gone down. And some VCs, well, one VC that we spoke to in particular said that, you know, they, they weren't they weren't happy with that business model because we weren't taking the fee. Yeah. You know, but that that is just against what we're doing. And we yeah. believe that it's a highly scalable platform because it's based on volumes of transactions. And at the minute, there is 522 billion cashless transactions yeah. a year. And then 1.4 billion people are giving to good causes in this multitude of disconnected ways. Mm-hmm. Whereas what we're doing is bringing it all together into one place so you can actually see your impact. Yeah. And the opportunity is huge because this this is a growing area i know we've been working together for a year or so and you you've been at this a lot longer than that you've tried all the obvious things you've had a lot of success actually you you know you've got a great platform you've got good corporate partners Mm -hmm. you're making real inroads in the fintech world you know you're winning stuff left right and center yeah people get that on that side Mm -hmm. people get it but you've also had this struggle and you are so not alone with this Mm -hmm. in actually trying to close the investment Mm -hmm. Just quickly tell us a little bit about what you've tried mm-hmm. and without naming names unless mm. you want to, um, yeah. what what has been the consistent mm-hmm. problems mm. or barriers that you've hit? Mm-hmm. And I think, you know, the reason that we, you know, I'd like to talk about that is for every one episode I make and bring people onto, I have five, 10, 15 people messaging or, or talking to me. I was at a wedding last Sunday and the entrepreneur agony aunt was like in demand all wedding. <laughs> There's a lot of entrepreneurs at the wedding and everybody just started the conversation with that question and it just all comes back so to funny. funding. So tell us a little bit about what you've tried so far and what has and hasn't worked. It totally does come back to funding, doesn't it? You know, because I think the, the issues that we have, like you say, is one, we're in a completely new market here with the, the new PSD2 open banking legislation. Two, we do have that social element to it. So that's an, that is is an, another kind of barrier just to try and explain that new type of business model to an investor and to have them feel comfortable that actually this is a it may this is a for profit you know we're making profit at the end of the day but we're also doing a vast amount of good off the back end yeah. as well um so we did we went to all of the scottish ecosystem of uh-huh. investing angels oh, yeah. because we are so different we're so new going to a, a certain type of of syndicate that's is not really willing to take that much of a risk on something that is so different and so new um, and really actually looking at innovation like not just something that is uh, is a simple business model and is going to make you a clear good little piece of money off the back end of that you know like we are something that could be something really big here mm-hmm. and you have to be willing to take a certain level of risk in that and I just don't think that that's that 
that they have the appetite for that mm-hmm. here, if I'm being completely honest. Yes, I think that probably that ecosystem would agree with you in some ways. They, they have, as those angel funds particularly, and it is largely angel dominated, mm-hmm. and even the VC funds are quite small funds with still individual investors in. There's a formula to that. They mm-hmm. expect to win this many, lose this many. Yeah. And the ones that win need to get an X amount of return back. There's quite a formula. And there's not very much money has come out of the other end. The big exits in this market, one FanDuel was one of them, but then it turns out that that didn't bring any of the angels or any of the early investors or the founders in that any money back mm-hmm. um, because of the way that that deal was so ratcheted up by the end. Skyscan didn't take early stage funding in any way, shape or form. So there was no money back into the ecosystem from that. So there hasn't really been consistent topping up of the pots that fund the deals. Mm. So the money isn't really sloshing around in the Scottish market in the way that it is in some. So did you do what I did, get sick of of not getting anywhere in Scotland and go to London and try that? Yeah, that's so- where we're kind of at now. Yeah, so we're actually working with the Virgin team. We we met Richard Branson, who loves what we're doing. So we then kind of got put into this program with Virgin, who are connecting us to investors in London. So, you know, I think Ashley and I both feel that we get more traction in the States and in London yeah. than we do in Scotland. So that, that was exactly the yeah. same experience for me, uh-huh. by the way. I spent a year trying to raise money in Scotland and didn't get mm. anywhere. Yeah. I went to London and I did close my first round in, I think, 12 weeks at about three or four times the price. Mm -hmm. And by the time my last company was um, going in a different direction to me, I had got a reasonably strong prospect of a very large Series A out of the US, and I'd been working with those US investors in prep for that for two years. So I think that's true. I wonder, and I don't know if you've done this, have you also gone through an exercise where you've started to map out the values of potential investors? And I'm thinking particularly corporate, you took you took about Virgin, and that makes a ton of sense to me. But obviously, there is angel investment, there's VC investment, there's crowdfunding investment, but there's also corporate investing. And corporate investing is often underplayed. Mm-hmm. And it comes with some strings, depending on the type of deal that you do, you know, whether they're investing in you to keep you away from everybody else, or whether they're investing in you quite benignly in a way to to grow their own tech capabilities. I actually had a really positive experience, and I deeply regret I wasn't able to take it further with MasterCard, who have a program, and they'll take up to a 20% option in you and and this kind of thing. It was really interesting. And I wonder if there's an exercise to do, which is looking at people that share your values as a company and what you're trying to achieve, but also that share overlap with the technology space that you're in with the overall goal of where you're in and seeing who's got corporate venturing funds or who, who are running programs like the virgin one but at the next stage on where a 1 million to 1.5 million check is a reasonable prospect because it seems to me that's what you need right now yeah exactly so again we've kind of been in discussions with um, corporate partners that could invest significant amounts or kind of chunkier amounts 
So um, we spoke to Wells Fargo in the States. Again, they are interested and nationwide in the UK that would kind of help accelerate the growth. And then we're also speaking with WeWork. But I guess it's kind of getting those things over the line and in the bank. And it's the time it's taking to convert those things with the sort of our timescales are not always aligned to their timescales. So I I guess for us, it's kind of trying to figure out how we can create some urgency Mm -hmm. in that and, and bring a couple of these together you know, so that they can, who's going to be the lead investor? That's the, that's the question that's always being asked. Which one is yeah, going to lead? That's this? the interesting thing. Cause there's a, there's several interested uh, syndicates and individual yep. investors, but it's all comes down to, well, who's going to be the lead investor? I'll invest if you've got a lead investor. Yep. And nobody is identifying themselves as the lead. So and that's, that's, the that's really interesting. So this is quite a common challenge. That this whole idea of the, who's the lead investor. When you're dealing with a single angel syndicate, this can this can play out. So the very first angel round I did, even amongst that single group, I had probably like 15 individuals invest and not one of them wanted to be lead investor, which meant I ended up having to do that, which meant for the next four or five years of my company, instead of dealing with one lead for admin purposes I was dealing with first 15 then 30 then 38 individual investors really once you're getting to a deal of half a million plus but I mean certainly when you're getting to multi-million pound deals you're probably going to have two or three parties maybe this angel syndicate maybe this VC putting in a certain amount maybe this corporate and this whole thing about who's leading it it's an it's partly an administration thing, but it's partly a commitment thing. Mm-hmm. And sometimes you will find a fund willing to lead because they want to make their name in your space. They want to align themselves with your your values. So I was doing um, a deal with I was well, I was planning for a Series A with the US Angel Group, mm-hmm. and they had identified a U- UK counterpart that they actually would be really comfortable leading, and they in. Although they weren't willing to lead themselves because it was a new deal to them. They're like, we'd really like to work with these people who we think should lead and will come in. So sometimes you can actually talk to the funding question and or indeed look at their deals and you can see who they've done deals with before. So then you might be able to say, look, you've previously done something with XY who, who led that. Do you think they'd be interested in this? Is that somebody you could introduce me to there? Mm-hmm. So getting that lead is important but sometimes it can also be a look like you guys are really into this you really get us uh, you you know we really love you we really want to work with you um could you just could you help corral this through I'm not necessarily asking you to to lead but could we maybe get all three of these groups together now into one email thread and then maybe a lead will through that yeah will self-identify yeah um and sometimes it doesn't it's not necessarily the biggest party in fact often it's the smaller party that's got the most to gain and probably the most to gain is visibility from playing with those others or they really want to be seen to do the deal type that, that you represent um, yeah. So it's worth looking out for that, and if you are getting, if you are getting serious interest that's starting to manifest itself, that is the time where you're right. You have to create some urgency. Yeah. You have to start to create a you know, guys. If you don't get behind this, you're going to miss out. Yeah, we're we're going to be putting a closing date on this. We've got we've got enough people interested to do a deal. It's kind of 
now we're now we're in a position of choice. Mm-hmm. Any entrepreneur listening, this is where the investors and, and the advisors have to put their fingers in the ears and not hear this. <laughs> um, any entrepreneur listening who's done this knows that there's a bit of um, chutzpah, shall we say, involved in some of this. We're whipping this up to an auction, getting this frenzy going. It's it's like a mindset. They can smell it off you. You need to be walking in with confidence. Yeah, you, you need, need to, to be, be talking You with do, exactly right. <laughs> They're they animals. Can they smell can smell desperation. They totally. can smell fear. They can smell confidence. Better they than you how many days money yeah. you've got left in the bank. Yeah. That's why there's that split and I've talked about it before about desperation funding off option you know, your desperation funding path when you've got single figures days left in the bank versus an actual funding plan um everybody in the real world knows that there will be times when you're walking into that room and you have only got single digit money left in the bank but you sure as hell don't let that show mm-hmm. and if you own if you are on a funding cliff and you are desperately running out of money you can't start a strategic funding process the the time doesn't allow for it and I think you know I really feel your frustration because I wasted three years mostly raising money or chasing money or trying to get stuff closed down or and I never raised the amount I needed to actually fund my plan and that's something that we really uh, need some help with as well is to make sure that we are giving ourselves runway so that this doesn't happen again you know we can actually get ourselves to a good situation where we have a certain level of traction and you know we've gotten ourselves down the 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 pipeline that we wanted to get to and i think the important thing to say is you have you have traction you're not selling a pitch no you're not selling an idea yeah but I do think there is, well, there's Harvard research that shows when a male and, and, and male and female investors show the bias equally. This is not like a, a, a bloke thing. This is, this is how female founders are treated when they're raising money. Men are typically asked how big this can be. So it's all about the scale and the size of the vision. And female founders are asked about risk and competence. So really, how can I trust you with my money? You know, what if it all goes wrong? How quickly will this be profitable? Are you sure your business model is right? Etc. So there's a fascinating Harvard study on this. It seems like you're in that damn struggle of a place where actually if you were going in from a male founder perspective, this would be easier. Now, all the males are going, it's not easy. I'm struggling with it too. And I and I, I honestly, I get it. But this is a team that has a product. You have a platform. You mm-hmm. have people on it. You have traction. You, you're not kind of, you're not at the beginning pitching an idea. So you have every right to be in the room asking, I don't know what you're asking for, but I would expect it's, what, million, two million? Well, it's kind of, Half of that. <laughs> Kate, yeah. double it. Ask for more. We tried that, but that, I know. that didn't work. I tried we, it and it didn't work either, but you take, need to ask get, for yeah. what you need to fund I your know. plan. Yeah. You need to ask for what you need to fund your plan. Mm-hmm. Otherwise, everybody sits there going, oh, you're not asking for enough. Yeah. It'll never work. Or worse still, you have, you do what I did, which is you actually erase the amount that you ask for, mm-hmm. but your plan hasn't changed. Mm-hmm. You can't execute your plan as quickly as you intended, because mm-hmm. you're you're doing it on a third of the money. Yeah. But you're you're still mm-hmm. held accountable for why you haven't executed the plan. Mm-hmm. I I knew I I needed about one point two million. Mm-hmm. I raised two hundred, followed by five hundred, followed mm-hmm. by another three hundred, mm-hmm. four hundred in that time. Right. All of which 
we weren't going fast enough, all mm-hmm. of which we didn't have the engine behind, the sales yeah. engine, the marketing engine, mm-hmm. and the growth rate. And then, you know, three years down the line, it's like, well, this hasn't grown at the speed that you said it would. Mm-hmm. So, well, and, and that's completely true. It is mm-hmm. completely true. But then I started off growing, doing this on £200,000, mm-hmm. and I needed £1.2 million. Yeah. Yeah. It's really, really yeah. difficult. And I think that's where your corporate venturing partner yeah. might be a better yeah. bet for you mm-hmm. and in your space. Yeah. yeah. I agree. What about individual investors? Because there's been a few of them that have kind of identified themselves as being interested. That's a really interesting one. I mean, there are a few good, benevolent people in this ecosystem, in every ecosystem, they're generally founders. They're founders who have made money and they are good and generous at providing a well-timed 20, 30, 50, 100,000 pounds. And they are generally understanding in that this is a really important piece of oil in the machine of a round that has yet to happen. I personally think that's incredibly valuable money you know you but you have to trust your instincts and you have to trust right. the word of the people in the community yeah. there are there are good and there and there are bad and it won't take very long to ask around mm-hmm. to find out which which somebody probably listening is going through this right now where they had the reverse of it which is quite well-known individuals dropping in quite a large amount of money as individuals with the long-term game of, of just taking the company for a song where you'll see how that is actually likely to play out is what they want. If they want board control, if they want types of shares that uh, ratchet up or that their percentage is protected round after round after round, or they want you know two board votes to your one board vote, I would be really suspicious there was a power play going on there. Right. If they're like, yeah, I'll have the tax relief and I'm here if you need me and um, keep me up to date, please not looking to take over and yeah. and and you can validate that with somebody else and go did did they try to take over in the middle there's some people who absolutely understand and this is where the borderline one comes in it's quite an interesting one there's a few people individuals good individuals i'd say kenny fraser who's previously been on podcast is one of those people who spots a really good company and a really good founding team or founder quite early on and realizes they can't do it on their own and invests and then becomes quite active in the board or as a chairman yeah um and actually that can be mm-hmm. a super helpful thing mm-hmm. and i would say mm-hmm. you know my own my own chair invested in the company that way and was a very active chairman for that same rationale which mm-hmm. is this person can't do it on their own and i'm going to be um, invested literally time and mm-hmm. money yeah. yeah. Uh, to your point on the female founder piece, Vicky, that's really interesting because Ashley and I have definitely felt that our male counterparts that have been on some of the similar accelerator programs have found it easier to get funding, you know, without, to be honest, maybe some, in some cases, just without having the same traction or, you know, in some cases, not in all, and a lot of them are doing great mm. things anyway. It just seems, it seems to us from the viewpoint where we are that it has been easier. And we are just wondering whether we should start bringing in you know, our male team members to these investor meetings to kind of just put some some more testosterone in the sustainably investor pitch or or how do we approach that because you know, oh my goodness you know what if they're credible 
I would. Mm-hmm. I apologise, I depressed myself for saying that. Well, um, I mean, it, it, it's what you've got to do to win at the end of the day, so... Look, you, you're, I don't think we've even said this, and nobody can see this because this is a podcast. You're a mother and daughter team. Yeah. Which is probably even more terrifying than a husband yeah. and wife team to oh, invest think? Probably. I did have an investor say to me, they would only invest if I got my husband out of the business because husband and wife teams always had pillow talk and you could never tell who was really pulling the strings. Oh my gosh. <laughs> they actually said that. It's the only time what did my... you do when they said that to you? Um, I walked away from the investment. I had £200 in the bank and I turned down £125,000. And I called my Scottish Enterprise uh, high growth advisor the next day and I said, I've made the right decision and I've killed the company. Wow. <laughs> and he was like, well, you could look at yourself in the mirror at least. Yeah. <laughs> like wow. until like I lose possession of the mirror. Yeah, <laughs> no, exactly. For a couple more days. <laughs> but the weird thing was after I did that, um, we got a hundred thousand pounds smart award coming wow. about ten days later. Yeah. And I had even forgotten that I'd applied it'd been so long. Yeah. And it was so spurious when I applied for it and we got it. That's mm-hmm. great. So yeah. I believe That's in universal life of a, karma. Of a star Absolutely. Right yeah. There. <laughs> yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, it yeah. was. And, and um, that was one of the scariest moments, mm-hmm. actually. But yeah. I had to, you know, I made that choice because it, and it's like you not having compromised the mm-hmm. values of the company. Yeah. Mm-hmm. If I'd compromised everything I believed, who I was, the value of my husband in that business, who'd helped me develop product and the IP and was leading that, if I compromised all of that away just to get the money, mm-hmm. what would we really have anyway? And, and B, how long would I even be left in the company? I suspect mother and daughter team is scary too. You know, it's like a husband and wife and maybe they'll get divorced. Yeah. <laughs> a mother and daughter, the divorce option is not available. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I might want to work on that one. (laughs) And at the end of the day, it's like we we have a a very unusual relationship. In it's not a very traditional mother daughter. It's very much a you know no holds barred. We say what we need to say. We 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 almost are morphing into the same person. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Well, I think this is the interesting thing, and this is why you might want to think about bringing either exposing more of your team on your slide deck Mm -hmm, or bringing more of your team. Thinking about a chairman. It's funny Some of that those you say advisory that. thinking about that different perspective. Yeah. You you as to co-founders, at, on paper, what you represent is board votes, right? So how are you two votes or one? Because if you're two votes and you're morphing into the same person and you're so close, essentially you can always be guaranteed to vote the same. If the investor's only got one board vote, or they've got two, or they'll be going, well, God, I'm going to need three to outvote them because they're always going to vote the same. When people say I don't really like working with husband and wife teams, Mm. that's really what they mean. These two are going to vote the same. You know, they're always going to take the same side. Mm -hmm. They're always going to decide the same way. They're actually more powerful than their share capitalization or their vote might imply. You know, that's really what it's all down to. Mm -hmm. So it might be a good strong, independent chair Mm -hmm. from a really different background to you, Mm -hmm. demographically different to you, might be really interesting. Mm -hmm. Um, And then it it, it just makes it less relevant. 
I yeah. think. Because um, we recently just got told by one of our advisors to take the team out of the investor pitch deck. You have to have your <laughs> team <laughs> no. in your investor. That's ridiculous <laughs> advice. So Sorry, just, have no. the, just have the founders because that's what investors are investing no, in No, right no, whoever said that is it wrong. It wasn't actually one of our advisors. It was an investor. So, you know, we are not abiding by that. Now, the team, th- there's some truth to that if what you're showing is your intern and the person yeah. that does the filing mm-hmm. and your yeah. accountant. Mm-hmm. Yeah. If, if yeah, that's yeah. what's on your mm-hmm. team slide, then they're right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But if what's on your team slide is, this is our advisory panel. Yeah. Or this is mm-hmm. our, yes, there's us, but here's, here's the star in their space that's running mm-hmm. the tech. Here's yeah. our star fintech advisor. Mm-hmm, yeah. Here's our star data person. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. And that's where you have to be a little, when you haven't got those roles hired, that's where that team slide is really important because mm-hmm. it's like actually right now we're me I'm responsible and like a genius at this I'm a genius at this we recognize that right now we have a gap here that's being filled by so-and-so who is on our advisory panel right. and is a superstar in this space but actually once we've got money this is this is where we hire okay yeah and that's what the function of that team slide is all yeah. about because we do we're just bringing on like a somebody into a, a sort of CT a CTO role mm-hmm. who's male as well. Yep. So I think it would be really great to start bringing him in to things. Yeah, I mean, once I was in the position of having a, a um, CTO, I mean, he was like great on paper. He looked great on my slide. You know, he'd worked on a big known company that had an exit to Microsoft. Mm-hmm. Um, he really filled a slide slot nicely. Um, he didn't actually physically, he was not based in this country, so he didn't come to me with meetings, but he served his purpose on that slide is, I've now got an experienced CTO who's had an exit, who's grown a company, mm-hmm. box ticked. It's all about de-risking this stuff. Yeah. Lots of good advice there, Vicky. Yeah. I'm conscious of the time. Um, just got a couple of minutes left. Anything else you would either like to share as advice to the people that are listening or um, anything else? Would like I to think ask while we're still recording. Yeah, I think the biggest thing for us is to kind of uh, to really think about getting investor ready really early because it has taken us a long time. And had we kind of had the advice that we've had now, kind of maybe a year or a year and a half ago, we would have been in a different position now and mm. kind of really sort of put some urgency behind it with some numbers and kind of got this done faster and actually started speaking to people with money that did care. Yeah, you know, because we spent a lot of time speaking to people that didn't have money. Well, we didn't know they didn't have money, oh, but yeah. you know, kind of more like as a scientific experiment, and we were the the science. Oh gosh, you know yes. that kind of thing. So, so as a finishing point, those are two extraordinarily yeah. invaluable yeah. things that you've just highlighted there. Start raising money a year before you need money, which yeah. sounds crazy because everybody's going, "We always need money. We never have any money." Like seriously, we need money now, but. Getting your financial model, uh, not just an Excel spreadsheet with totals on it. If you go in with an Excel spreadsheet with totals on, people will halve your numbers. They will waste a huge amount of your time and theirs trying to unpick your numbers. They won't trust your numbers and they'll just half them and they'll half them again. Whereas if you go in with a model that shows your assumptions, this is what I assume my conversion rate is, this is what I assume my churn rate is, this is where, you know, what I'm going to charge for these various things. They understand where you're trying to go with that. So you've got to have that stuff ready. You've got to have the documentation ready. You've got have thought about how much you need and why you need it and what you're going to do with it and have really kind of worked on your shortlist of who I'm going to target 
rather than wasting your time just doing the rounds. Way, way better you talk to the 10 right people than 150. Mm -hmm. But don't talk to your top prospect first. Practice, have a practice all five to make all the mistakes. I mean, I remember going to one where I just was so oversharey. Like I literally blurbed out everything that was frightened of and everything that was going wrong and like, everything, <laughs> I that, every that. mistake. I, I, I mean, it was just a nightmare. It was like awful. It was the what not to do. And, um, you know, you don't want to do that on your mm-hmm. number one investor. Get that one over with quite early on somebody who's like number 19 out of 20 or number yeah. 20 out of yeah. 20. Doing due diligence on your investors is really important because they're doing whole, on you, but do you actually think to do it on them? You know, yeah. so when you start speaking to investors, your presumption is that they actually have money. So I think that, you know, in hindsight, hindsight that, that we would really be more thorough in our due diligence mm-hmm. on those adv- investors, kind of what even ask them, for example, the guys that we're working with at the Virgin Startup Team in London or like if people approach you saying they want to meet you for investment, find out when their last deal was, how much their deal was, you know, kind of what sectors they're interested in and actually ask those questions. And if they don't come back to you with the answers, don't meet them. Absolutely. Because they are actually just wasting your time Mm -hmm. and using you as an experiment. And if they can't even answer that one, that one simple email, then you know you shouldn't be meeting with them. Yeah, because you either deal bait in that they want mm-hmm. to get you on side so that they can go out and actually raise their fund, which could take a year, or you're working for their PR, so they're trying to use you to make themselves look like they're active. Or they're just keeping informed. Worse still, they are keeping your competitors that they happen to have an investment that you might not be aware of in informed uh, or worse still they're just kind of like creepy weirdos who want to meet you I mean I've had that too um, even though I'm like really old I now only meet people in like really boring places institute of director at their bank at their lawyer's office or somewhere like really insanely dull but no mm-hmm. meeting people in a bar no meeting people somewhere sociable because honestly I do think that there are people who just want to like meet you yeah and that's Ignoring all the creepy weirdness, that's just a total waste of time and you don't have time. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. It's been wonderful to talk to you. Thank you so much for coming and being honest to me. It's so difficult to say this isn't as easy as everybody stands up and publicly says it is. (laughs) So complete respect. And I hope that this turns out into getting you some damn money in because I would invest if I wasn't broke from a lot of business. Why do we do this? You've been listening to Vicky Brock and Laurel Aishul Quinn, this week's Entrepreneur Agony Aunts. You can subscribe at iTunes, Spotify, Podbean and the entrepreneuragonyaunt.com website.